Uh, I'm here with Penelope Bajou at Word Bookstore in Greenpoint. We're a very intimate conversation tonight. <laughs> to talk about California Dreamin', uh, her new uh, graphic biography of Mama Cass Elliot. Her, her real name was Ellen Cohen, mm-hmm. correct? Okay. So, uh, why Mama Cass? What got you interested in her? Um, I remember having this um, tape from my parents' car when I was a kid because we took this, well, we talked about how short road trips are in Europe, but Uh, I can promise you that when you're a kid and you're stuck in your parents' car and you have to drive to the south of France, it takes 10 to 12 hours and it is long. And my parents had the, I don't know what kind of music listen uh, to do parents listen to in the U.S., but parents in France, they listen to Super Tramp and (laughs) Dire Straits and the Mamas and the Papas. And so I had this tape that I knew by heart, really by heart, um, after a while, because we listened to it over and over again. So it was part of my childhood's uh, background anyway. And then one day I finally stole that tape from my parents to listen to it on my own stereo in my bedroom. And one of the speakers was broken. <laughs> and so I only heard half of the sound. And actually, I only heard her voice, which was isolated from the rest. Oh, wow. But it's mostly the song, because her voice mm-hmm. is usually the song. And I found out it wasn't just a woman, but it was a band. Because to me, it has always been her. And I also remember the cover of that album, on which you had the four of them, very mysterious and very glamorous. And her in the middle hysterically laughing and so bright and so and I was really fascinated uh, by this woman so everything is fascinating about her mm-hmm. I think uh, especially because that was it would be outstanding today but it was even more so 50 years ago right and she was huge compared to the others she was smiling she had this amazing thick long hair curly hair she was, and that voice was, you know, haunting. And um, and then I, well, so I kind of always had it with me, but when I was older, like when I was a, a, a young adult, uh, along came the era of Wikipedia. So I got <laughs> to learn a little more about her. And I learned that she had had this crazy life where she had married a baron. She had had a kid, but no one knew who was the father. And that she was mysteriously romantically linked to um, a lot of uh, famous like John Lennon and people mm-hmm. like that and I thought who is that woman and so I wanted to know more and know more about her teenage years and her childhood had she always been overweight did she always want to be a rock star and so I totally fell into that vortex of things about her not that a lot of things exist about her because mm-hmm. she hasn't ever been really this the, the you know it's not like Elvis where there's like exactly. a minute by minute you know exactly. memory of his last day basically yeah. and know. and so I really got into that and and thought how come there is not a biopic about her yet because <laughs> there will be so much to tell and then of course I heard about this crazy love rectangle that they had this vaudeville inside that band well you I mean you talk about the making of the band you talk about her it is like goes from her earliest years uh, to you know kind of the moment where they hear their hit song on the radio kind of thing mm-hmm. so you stop right at the moment where you know they're going to make it um, and uh, the second half of the story could easily be another book. I mean, this is there's so much, you know, the juicy stuff that you just alluded to. And, you know, certainly 
you know, John Phillips, uh, like, oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Is okay. there anything he hasn't done? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wanted to stop the minute that she becomes Mama Cass. I really mm -hmm. want to tell the story of Ellen Cohen. And so it ends when she becomes a public figure. Right. So, but I mean, the story up until then, um, well, you and I have done, we did another panel, I remember, uh, back in last fall, for, and we talked about uh, biographies and, and nonfiction books. And um, I mean, there are quite a few graphic novel biographies nowadays, and, and I know they're very popular in France, and so I have read my share. Uh, but I have to say, you did yours uh, really surprised me, like just how you did it was, I think it was, um, it was a lot more imaginative. Um, you use a structure that's really, really interesting. Uh, instead of just like, and on this day, uh, she was born, and then on this day, her father died. Uh, you tell chapters from all the people around her. And so, and she never, she is never, you never go inside her head. Yeah. So, so yeah, why? How? Why did you come up with that structure? Well, I think it, it, that's the way it mentally built in my head because I couldn't read any testimonial from her directly. She never wrote an autobiography. She never really gave that many interviews about herself. Uh, so anyway, the way I discovered her was by having people talking about her. So I had to myself to do that puzzle of trying to build an image mentally of her from, okay, so that's what her sister said, that's what this uh, band member said, etc. And also I thought the process was interesting so that she remained a puzzle until right. the end because right. she was, everybody said, the thing that everybody agreed on was that she was so funny, she was like the funniest person on earth and she was always telling jokes and she was very loud and very, and on the other hand, it's obvious that she was broken inside. So I really like this mystery that she kept and I thought if she speaks if she's the narrator it's over you know mm -hmm. we all we immediately know that of course it wasn't funny being called the fat one being uh friend zoned all the time mm -hmm. of course it wasn't funny to be rejected but if we never give her the speech that's that's uh I think you have to solve the puzzle by yourself and right. that's interesting right and it kind of does preserve this kind of glamorous view of her too like you know that she was like this one thing that you talk about over and over in the book is just how what star power she had and you know just even as a kid people were talking about how she commanded the room and 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 people wanted to help her like you know to like in one scene her it's her was there a voice teacher lets her borrow her car <laughs> to go yeah. to New York. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So people were really enchanted. They were mesmerized by her, weren't they? Yeah, I think they all, all said that you only saw her on stage, and that's also what was such a big problem, I think, with John Philip because initially he didn't want her in the band because, well, basically because she was too fat. He said it so, mm -hmm. and and then I think he was really annoyed by the fact that no matter what he tried. It was her that people preferred. It was her that people wanted. And in the end of their career, their band was actually called Mamacas and the Mamas and the Papas. <laughs> so people were after her because right. she had this persona, this amazing voice. And you cannot fool people with, oh, yeah, look, that's a pretty one. You know, people know who's singing. So. Right, right. What was her relationship like with Michelle Phillips? I mean, were they rivals or friends? I think or? they were very good friends. And it was very important to me to not uh, get into that trope of the mean girl. Uh, she was very uh, good to her, I think, very envious in a good way and very um, 
nurturing, I think. And I've read that um, Kaz didn't have many female friends, but I think Michelle Phillips was really a very good friend. And it's funny because after all this little quatuor has been through, they were still speaking and they were still good friends. I mean, right. they had this amazing divorce crisis drama thing and yet everybody was cool with that and they just <laughs> made jokes about it. Uh, so I think she was a very good friend to her and it was it's always very important to me to have um, supportive, uh, good-hearted female characters and not just... Right. You know. It'd be like, oh, it's competition. Yeah, it's so very important to have strong female friendships right. and stories, I think. So. Yeah. I mean, which, which did impress me. I mean, you didn't at all go down that road. I mean, I think there was probably more sibling rivalry with her. her she had a, a younger sister and a younger brother, and there was yeah. probably a little bit more, like, you know, like family drama in that way. Yeah, That's sure. So often is. <laughs> um, yeah, the other thing about the book that really struck me, aside from this really interesting structure of the storytelling, was um, well, it came out in France first. I should should say that because and you did create it for the French market, where I think uh, the audiences are for graphic novels are quite sophisticated. Um, but the story, the actual storytelling, is so subtle in there. I mean, again, it's not like uh, so many captions where uh, it's like you know. And in 1965, she recorded a single. Uh, and then you see a picture of her recording the single. single. Um, I mean, you use uh, the one that really got me actually was there's a scene in the high school where she's talking about how she's a cheerleader and she's you know popular and she's been with all these men and uh, you know she used to be skinny and all this stuff and her friend is like oh you know that's full of crap and then in the very last panel very small you just have a panel of a picture of a cheerleader and she's taped her face over the cheerleader which is such a powerful image that tells you so much more about that. And there's the book is full of those kind of little storytelling touches. Well, I, I as a reader, I hate uh, biographies. And I, <laughs> I, I don't read history books. I'm totally not a journalist. Uh, so I'm not really interested in just giving a bunch of facts and dates. I'm more interested in creating a story that you will want to turn the pages of and that you will love the character. So if she hadn't been real, it would have been exactly the same. I I built it like a fiction, although nothing is untrue. Mm-hmm. But I really I'm really not trying to teach anyone anything. It's not the, the point is not to learn something. Because right. I really hate to have to learn something while reading a book. <laughs> right, right. So it's not like, oh, this is what it was like in the in the sixties in, in the folk scene. I, <laughs> I I try well, the problem is if it's not, then you know, it kind of invalidates. You need to have actual facts so that the whole story is true anyway. Right. So I try not to invent things, but still I'm connecting the dots between facts. Mm-hmm. And in between I put, well, feelings and true people. So I try, you know, I don't know how she felt like when she got dumped. Mm-hmm. It's not written anywhere, but I can totally imagine. <laughs> right, right, So right. I try to make her alive mm-hmm. more than... Um, um, specifically actual and, you know... Right, right. To give the emotional truth that I think probably it's, it's, came out of the story. Yeah. That's what I like to read. Right. I like to feel things rather than know things. Right. So. Well, it certainly makes it a really uh, vivid book. I mean, it's very vivid. I think the other thing, one other thing that struck me about it was that um, 
And you also didn't do like um, kind of uh, really detailed recreations of like period detail. I thought you kind of gave, it was almost like a modernized feeling of the 60s. Is that, I don't know. Well, the um, 60s in America is to me anyway a myth. Right. It's not something that even my parents can tell me about. All I know is through movies right, and right. things I've read and seen. But to a European artist, everything about even the cars, everything is like right. mythology. So I'm pretty sure it has this little gloss of, come on, that's not how it was. Right, right, But right. I didn't, again, I didn't try to be over, uh, to, to get too much documentation right. to make sure it's... But it's more like a, yes, a fantasized vision of how it is. And also about the modernized part. That's the only way I can make um, characters that I relate to. If I try to think, what was it like being miserable in high school in the 60s? I have no idea. <laughs> Although, to be miserable in high school today, I clearly know what it's like. So I don't think it has changed that much. No, no. So the hairstyles changed, the clothes changed, but I'm pretty sure loneliness and yeah. hard years are still well it does it, it definitely has it does have this kind of mythological field not mythological but uh, it's glamorous it's a very glamorous story I thought in a lot of ways even though a lot of it is very you know gritty and down down a, you know her actual uh, romantic life with you know all the tensions in the band that was a quadrangle every which way you could have it I guess um, you know, there, there was a, a lot of that emotional grittiness in there too. But the, the you know, obviously '60s fashions, like like we'd wear them now, you know, and they do. Just walk outside the bookstore, um, you'll see them all over the place. Yeah, like my my vision of the Greenwich Village, it wasn't so different than what it is now, except that instead of record stores, you have APC stores. Mm-hmm. But the way people looked and their clothes and everything hasn't changed that much. It hasn't. So. Yeah. Did you see, it did remind me of um, the Coen Brothers movie, though. If you want to yeah. know what it's like to be miserable. Inside Lewin Davis, yeah. of course. Yeah. I was writing it at that very moment, and I feel like, <laughs> this is my Bible. It's perfect. <laughs> it has everything. It's perfect. Yeah. And, but then I, I saw it again in a Williamsburg theater recently, mm-hmm. and I had a very vivid memory of it. Like, I remember that the, the scenes of the streets and the cafes were amazing. But then I figured there, was, there wasn't that much. In my memory, it was a lot yeah. richer, but... It's more. It's still an amazing movie, and I laughed so much. Mm. But I think I really over imagined what it was. Yeah. Well, it does. It captures your imagination. I love it. It's one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies. Um, but I, I think one of the reasons that I love it so much is that it really is about the artist who might be a great artist, but they're also an asshole. And because there's so many people, <laughs> yeah, you know who don't succeed because they don't deserve to succeed because they're they're really shitty people and also when it comes to him because of a bad timing yeah because he was here like two hours too late right right and i mean i think with with Cass and with her story um i mean you see her just uh hanging in there you know, and just until they accept her, she was desperate to be accepted by this trio mm-hmm. to make it a, a four-man group, a four-person group, and uh, you know, so she just had that drive to be in there, didn't she? Yeah, she wanted to be. She wanted to be more than a band. She wanted them to live in the same house, and of course, deep inside, she wanted to have this relationship with Danny Doherty. But also, she she really wanted to have this little group, and she was a kid. You know, we tend to forget that 
all these famous rock stars, they were in, the, in their 20s. They were really kids. Yeah. And so I think she wanted to have this, she wanted to hang out with the cool kids because she never did. Right, right. Um, I think one thing that, that might be, uh, we were talking about this before we sat down here, but um, uh, some people might not really be aware of the fact that her size in that, at that time really was very remarkable, Income, right? Yes. It was something that set her apart quite a bit. Yes, and also what I thought before I started working on that was that back then it would be an easier thing to, you know, to be... Because I thought it was before MTV, before music videos, no one really cared what you looked like. People were more interested in the music and the voices, unlike today where yeah. if you don't have the right looks, <laughs> you can forget about a career in the music industry. But it's not true. Even back then, she, they gave her a very hard time because of that, and labels didn't want to have her unless she lost weight, and she was constantly rejected and just because of that, and also make, made fun of. I saw some TV comedy shows where she was the guest, and the whole joke, the whole sketch was about, ha, ah, she's fat. Wow. And, that was, and she was part of it, and she was taking part of it, like, hey, that's what I do, I'm fat, and that's it. And also, when you listen to some of the lyrics, like in Creaky Alley, where, well, the, they keep saying over and over again, and no one's getting fat except Mama Cass, and she was singing oh, that man. on stage all the time, and it was, it was totally okay. And it was, <laughs> must have been horrible. And even back then, it was easier when you looked like Joan Bez than yes. when you looked like Mama Cass. And so it was even even more so. I think fifty years ago, oh, it was, yeah. she was she had to be really tough. But I think I think also like one of one of the things that I notice when I watch movies of the period. Like I've been rewatching Star Trek, and you watch this, and you're like, uh, they're so skinny. Like everyone in the show is skinny, and it's not like they work out because William Shatner takes off his shirt because that's what you know he's a beefcake. And I mean, this guy hasn't worked out. You know, I mean, I've been more buff than he is, and and he's just a skinny guy. <laughs> and but that's how people were. They were small. We didn't have all the food we have now, the additives. So for someone to be her size would have been like really. You might not even have seen a person that big necessarily. Yeah, um, and I think it was uh, kind of uh, intriguing. Also, like how. Do, You must be really eating a lot. People who are very... And also that's what I wanted to show in the book. Even her good friends, the least they are is concerned. Like, mm. maybe you should go see a doctor anyway, you know? It wasn't okay. And right. to the extent of people really making fun of her and rejecting her. But even the people who loved her, that was also the time where parents were giving her tons of diet pills when she was a child which led oh, her to being an addict shocking scene actually where they're giving her a speed yeah because um, that's supposed to help her not being hungry and the scene after that she said oh it doesn't work I'm still hungry but I'm also now speedy all the time and I can't sleep wow. and you know that's also how Kurt Cobain started uh, the drug path mm -hmm. because of pills that were these over medicated kids So that's also something I wanted to talk about. Yeah. Well, she, I mean, there is quite a bit of drug use in the book, too. Um, and I, that does seem to be the, uh, the, the cliche, the trope of the rock star, obviously. Now, if you listen to the Mamas and Papas music, I mean, it does seem like this kind of blissful, 
like peaceful, beautiful melodies singing. I mean, it doesn't scream drug orgy. <laughs> and yet, and yet there was a drug orgy. Yeah, I, I, she, she was. She declared proudly that she had been taking acids when she was pregnant, and that it was a wonderful experience, mm-hmm. which was kind of hard not to judge when I read that. But um, they had this very different and very innocent approach to drugs that I must say kind of fascinates me too because. You know, I'm such an angel when it comes to drugs. <laughs> so I have, I was kind of envious and wow, that must have been really cool living back then. But uh, yes, they were they were on drugs all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's like she comes. It's like cigarettes. Yeah, it's like she's like, oh, I'm out of LSD. It's like, oh, don't worry, we got plenty. And I mean, you know, even I mean, I grew up in the the 70s and. It was like, oh my God, a bad trip. You know, you could drop acid and let one bad trip and it's over for you. You yeah. know, I mean, so the idea of like, wow, they're just doing it all the time. You've got to be joking. Yeah, and it went very nicely from diet pills as a kid to smoking pot as a teenager. And then, you know, one thing leading to another, yeah. very naturally, acid become the, the everyday thing. Yeah, and just in case anyone doesn't know the end of the story, she died when she was 32 years old. So. Yes, she, she went further than the 27 club, but she, yeah. yeah, it ended at 32 because of she had a terrible heart condition because of everything in her life. Right. I guess. Well, she did try drastic dieting as well. There were points of her life yes. that afterwards, I after she, you yeah, she was she was made to, I, I, I think, and uh, but she was... She was she was really doing a lot of drugs in the end of her career. She had a very chaotic uh, solo career in the end. There were shows where she couldn't even get on stage. She was kind of an Amy Winehouse. I was literally just about to say that. Yeah, so. she was. I, I read some very sad stories of her solo shows in Vegas where she was totally uncontrollable and they had to cancel a lot of shows because she couldn't even leave wow. her dressing room. Do you do you think? I mean, why do you think uh, creative people are so drawn to to uh, altered states like that? I mean, you know, among writers, alcoholism is, of course, the cliche, and I've I, you know I've seen that myself quite a bit. Uh, you know, artists smoking is a big one for a lot of artists who sit at their board all day. But I mean, you know, substance abuse is really really common for creative well, people. I think a tiny part of it is because that's what they're expected to do but also I think what comes with a lot of creativity and an artistic eye might be hypersensitivity which is not always a good thing because it also means that you're a sponge to a lot of unhappiness and outside bad stuff that you have to find a way no matter which to to deal with and also a lot of artists are depressed and and it's I think artists go through a lot more shit than <laughs> average people because yeah. they everything is so it's like they everything is more vivid. Right, right, yeah. Well, it is one of the occupational hazards. Um, uh, did you? So you? This is your? Is this your first full length biography graphic novel? Yes. Okay. Will Pro- it be probably your- the last? Oh, yeah. So you, yeah, you don't want to do more like this, or I think you can totally lose yourself in biographies because there there are so many that you want to tell about, and all of them are fascinating. And I have a tendency to fall into a vortex of reading biographies online, and I'm I become totally obsessed with someone, mm-hmm. and then I can't, you know, I annoy everyone with it for a while. So to make sure this is behind me, I just finished uh, 
big book of 30 biographies, 30 short biographies of all these women that hunted me for years. So now I'm done with biographies, <laughs> hopefully, and I can try to write fiction again. Uh -huh. um, but it's, it's, you know, you're never done with the tributes that you want, because it's tributes mostly. Right, right. And, and the fact that you want everyone else to love them too, especially when it's people that are not known enough which is totally the case for Mama Cass, because if you ask people, first they're not really sure who it is, then you sing the song and they say, oh, I know that song. Is it the fat one who died over a sandwich? <laughs> and so I really wish a lot of people at the end of this book want to listen to her, mm -hmm. and I really hope they do, and also think she, was, she must have been so cool. Yeah. I really wish she was my friend, because yeah. that's really how I feel about her. Well, you certainly get to know her through this book. California Dreamin'. So, uh, well, thank you, Penelope. Thank you. <laughs> thank you.